they meet. Annihilation, Jim. Total, complete, absolute annihilation. Of everything that exists, everywhere. Bridge to all decks, or should I say, red alert. It's time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve. I'm Scott Mance. And I am Steve Morris. And Scott, you know, we've gone where no man has gone before. We've gone on an incredible journey through these early episodes. And now we have arrived at a certain place that I think both you and I had some uh, trepidation about because we have reached the alternative factor. The alternative factor. And I have to say that although... For a long time, I was just, it was just, this episode was just kind of hanging there, you know, like, like we're going to have to get to it eventually. And now here we are. And this, after, after talking about so many timeless classics that have absolutely stood the test of time as one, as the all time greats of Star Trek, particularly an episode like Balance of Terror, where no man has gone before, you know, there were also some episodes where, we we thought they were fine. They were okay. They had their they had their merits, but they weren't great episodes. Like Mud's Women, uh, Miri is a is another one. Dagger of the Mind. But the alternative factor, I think we can all agree here that that this it was it was it was inevitable that yeah. Star Trek would get around to producing its first turkey. <laughs> it, it really is, and I think it po- it points out this thing that's so weird in our world is when we were kids. Whatever Star Trek episode was on was on, you know, Mm -hmm. and now I would never have I would never choose to watch the alternative factor, frankly. You know, I mean, I'm sure 20 years from now, I'll rewatch the whole series again. But alternative factor is not one of those episodes. They go, I feel like alternative factor. Whereas as a kid, it was just I remember like, oh, it's this one. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then I would sit down and watch it, you know. Okay, but when you did sit down and watch it back then, what Mm -hmm. were your thoughts? I don't think I had thoughts. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it was just an episode of Star Trek. It was here. Are my, but I, even then I was like, I, I remember, I don't quite understand what's going on. <laughs> like, I don't understand why people are doing what they're doing. And having looked at it now in great detail, I do understand what's wrong with this episode. You know, it's like, I, uh, as you know, I teach film school and I have a lot of students. And in particular, the thing students struggle with the most is their scripts. And I am very critical and go into a lot of detail on what makes scripts work and what makes scripts not work. I got a lot of thoughts on why this thing doesn't work. Oh, I, I, I agree with you completely. I remember, you know, when, when the alternative factor was in the rotation and again, growing up in Philadelphia, watching Star Trek on WPHL channel 17, Philadelphia, you know, I was really lucky in the sense that on one hand, they were showing the episodes in production order, not in air date order. Uh, it, it was decades before I saw the episodes in air date order, which they have on, uh, you know, Netflix and Amazon right. and all that. But but the uh, production order, when it got to the alternative factor, I remember I would just c- kind of get through it. And like you, I, I mean, I agree completely. It's not an episode that I go out of my way to watch. And quite frankly, the alternative factor. I haven't seen this episode in a really long time, and there are there are some episodes that are like that, especially you know from the third season. So rewatching the alternative factor, I still don't think it's a it's a good episode. It's a it's got a lot of problems, and screenplay 
definitely is a big problem. The performance of its uh, quick replacement guest star is a very big problem. And I think this is a situation where the producers kind of threw good money after bad to try Mm. to salvage the episode and it just didn't work. But having said that, watching it again, because it is a first season episode, because it is an episode that was produced by Gene Kuhn, there are some elements to it that make it worth watching, uh, especially with regards to the chemistry between Shatner and Nimoy. And there is also uh, an element to the alternative universe theory, which, as we know, was done much better in season two with Mirror Mirror. But it is something that I've I've explored a lot over the years, the you know, parallel universes, the multiverse. And while this episode is not great, while the episode is is definitely one where I think we're really gonna struggle to find the good in it, the fact is that the conversation about its flaws and the conversation that we are going to have about all of the drama behind the scenes with the casting of Lazarus in particular and the aftermath of this episode makes this a fascinating episode to dissect. Uh, An episode that the more I thought about it as I was prepping, I actually turned around and was like, I can't not wait to get into a conversation with Steve Morris about the alternative factor, because this is an episode where you have to ask yourself, wow, what the hell went wrong here? And it turns out there was a lot that went wrong. Well, I, I'm excited to, for one very silly reason. I think anyone who's listened to this first, what are we, 20 episodes in? 21. 21 episodes. Whoever's listened to the first 20 episodes, I think you probably could at some point go, man, these fanboys, they really love Star Trek. Like, they're <laughs> yeah. just, a, it, just, you're going to hear uh, me at least talk about something I don't like. <laughs> so it's going to be a real change of pace for Enterprise Incidents, I think. But at the same time, I mean, it is, it is Star Trek. It is the original series. And the episode was written by Don Ingalls, who, as it turns out, had a very sort of big backstory with Gene Roddenberry. Uh, First of all, uh, uh, Don Ingalls wrote the story, not the screenplay, but he wrote the story for the second season episode, A Private Little War, under under the name Judd Crucis. But Gene Roddenberry and Don Ingalls first met while they were serving together in the LAPD in the early 1950s. Plus, both had flown B-17 bombers in the Second World War, and had aspirations to become professional television writers. So Ingalls was a writer and producer on the series that Gene Roddenberry worked very heavily on, which was Have Gun, Will Travel. He was also a writer for The Virginian, The Big Valley, and Fantasy Island. And he was also a producer on The Virginian and Fantasy Island. And uh, to my big surprise, Don Ingalls was also a producer on T.J. Hooker. Oh, wow. That's interesting. (laughs) Working with Shatner again. So the episode was directed by Gerd Oswald. This was his second episode that he directed. Do you know the first? I do not. Okay. Well, Gerd Oswald, I'll I'll give you a hint, Steve. Gerd Oswald directed an episode that we have already talked about, Mm -hmm. and it is an episode that is number two on my personal favorites. Conscience of the King. The Conscience of the King. Yes. And it was because of Gerd Oswald's success with The Conscience of the King that they gave him the alternative factor to do. And unfortunately, uh, (laughs) 
Didn't quite work this time. Yeah. But the episode aired on March 30th, 1967. So that makes the alternative factor the 27th episode to air. Wow. So the problem is that the producers knew that they had a bad episode on their hands. So what they wanted to do is to kind of like put it in the back. They wanted the alternative factor to be the last episode to air on the first season. The problem is, is that the last two episodes of Star Trek to actually film were late being delivered. Mm. Those two episodes, City on the Edge of Forever and Operation Annihilate. So because those episodes were late being delivered, the alternative factor was the third to the last third, uh, first season episode to actually air. So while it was the 27th episode to air, it was actually the 21st episode to film. And it was filmed over seven production days between November 16th and November 25th, 1966. So because it was filmed in seven days, that made, made it one day over budget. Now, the alternative factor, you look at an episode like this, like maybe they kind of got away and it didn't really cost that much. Unfortunately, this was a very expensive episode. Cost $211,000 yeah, $211, to make, which makes it $26,000 over its first season budget of $185,000. Fortunately, the score was tracked from music used in other episodes, so they saved money there. But uh, I, I feel like this is an episode where, if you if you look at it, it's Moby Dick. Sure, yes, I can see that. Okay. I can see the obsession and the I'm hunting someone. Yeah, I can see the Moby Dickness of it. <laughs> Moby Dickness. <laughs> but in this case, the whale is is himself. Like, right. Like Ahab is is searching for himself, and to to give you an idea of just the the problems that they had. From almost the beginning, even back when it was a, a story outline in the first draft, Gene Roddenberry sent a memo to Gene Kuhn. And in the memo, Roddenberry said, and I quote, I am in a state of confusion over the whole story and not quite sure who is doing what to whom. That's the great bird of the galaxy himself saying that. And Don Ingalls wrote his story outline on August 29th, 1966, the day of the last Beatles concert in uh, San Francisco. He wrote his second draft teleplay on November 7th, and it was either Gene Kuhn or story editor Stephen Karabatsis who did a polish, a final draft on November 11th. Gene Kuhn did a rewrite, a revised final draft teleplay November 14th. And Kuhn and Karabatsis did revisions while the episode was being filmed uh, on November 15th, 16th, and 18th. Here's some other things. Like we talked about, okay, uh, you know, if, if this is sort of a play on Moby Dick, like let's look at where Star Trek really did Moby Dick really, really well. First of all, the Doomsday Machine. Sure. That's a great Moby Dick. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Yep. That's a great Moby Dick. Star Trek First Contact. That's a great Moby Dick. The alternative factor, not so much. (laughs) The other thing is that when Don Ingalls was doing his various rewrites and everything, it was his second rewrite, the one dated November 14th, where Don Ingalls had a part of the story where the door between the two parallel universe was opened and Kirk was able to go through that door and see his 
parallel oh. self. So that would have been kind of interesting. Sure. But it, it was, it was not, uh, obviously not, not even close to the situation that we saw in mirror mirror. Cause those two, those two Kirks never met, but regardless it was Stan Robertson, uh, from NBC who was concerned about yet another episode in which we see two Kirks after the enemy within right. and after what a little girl's made of where he said, yeah, let's not do the two Kirk thing again. I think we're, I think we're done with that. <laughs> Uh, it's so interesting. Scott, would you like to know some of the things that were going on in the world? Well, hopefully it's better than the episode that was shot. <laughs> some of it definitely, definitely is. For instance, if you wanted a great show, then you might have wanted to go out into the mountains or the desert late at night on November 17th, because at that moment, the Earth was passing through the debris from the Temple Tuttle Comet. And it was one of the biggest meteor showers in the last 200 years Whoa. at one point there were as many as 40 meteors a second that would have been really cool <laughs> really cool uh woody allen's first full-length play don't drink the water premiered on broadway it was a big hit um this is a huge one for our catholic friends which is on november 18th the pope ended meatless fridays after 11 centuries 1,100 years, Catholics were eating fish on Fridays. And on November 18th, the Pope said, it's cool, have a cheeseburger. <laughs> I don't think that's how he actually said it. He probably said it in Latin. Wow, but it was very radical. That's yeah. very radical. <laughs> um, on, uh, also on the 18th, Major William Knight, after climbing to an altitude of 98,000 feet, flew the X-15, which is the 15th generation of the same uh, um uh, plane that we wait who broke the stand chuck, chuck thank you name just flew out of my head <laughs> yeah, yeah. literally at mach one <laughs> the x15 which is 14 generations after the plane that chuck yeager used to break the sound barrier major william knight went to mach 6.33 4350 miles per hour that is unbelievable of Un chuck yeager glamorous glennis watch yeah. the right stuff <laughs> on the same on the same day sandy koufax who had been engaged to susan oliver by the way from oh, the cage yeah totally unexpectedly announced his retirement at the height of his career because of arthritis in his elbow oh wow and i really wonder like if this had if it had been today and we had medical treatments we might have had 10 more seasons of one of the greatest pitchers of all time no kidding um, i didn't know that he was involved with susan oliver yeah, I mentioned it when we did The Cage. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, on November 19th, something called Project Harp that I had never heard of fired a projectile into space with a cannon. How did that happen? It shot it 111 miles into space. It is the farthest any projectile has ever been shot. <laughs> I, I wonder if it came back down to Earth. <laughs> a, I don't have that in my notes. <laughs> it's still out there. On November 20th, we have another great Broadway premiere, which is Cabaret. Premiere oh, on yeah. November 20th. The Lunar Orbiter went around the moon and photographed the Ranger landing site where a U.S. spaceship had landed on the moon. It's the first time that a spaceship photographed a man-made object on a satellite in space. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. On November 21st, this one I found really, really interesting. Johns Hopkins opened its gender identity clinic and started accepting applications for the first gender reassignment surgery 
in world history. Oh, wow. Wow, that's interesting. It's particularly interesting given where we are today and Mm -hmm. that we're still obviously discussing these issues. Um, And this is one of the places that it started. Scott, on November 24th, there is something that happened that I think with your knowledge of dates and some of the things that you are obsessed with, what do you remember happening on November 24th? November 24th, 1966. I'm going to say because of that little tease there, Steve Morris, that maybe the, well, wait a minute. I think I know what it is. Wait, it's one of two things. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to guess that it's the day that John Lennon met Yoko Ono. It is not. No, okay, that was wait, a little wait. while ago. Okay. And then I'm going to say that the Beatles went back to Abbey Road to start working on songs for Sgt. Pepper. And I think they started recording when I'm 64. Well, they actually started. Yes, that is exactly correct. They went back to Abbey Road to start working on Sgt. Pepper, but then they actually started recording Strawberry Fields Forever. Okay, but you got to admit, uh, I, I, you know, I had two guesses. <laughs> Listen, I literally in my notes said, ask Scott, I bet he knows. That's what it says in my notes. Uh, all right, second guess, close enough. <laughs> on November 25th, the smog in New York City rose to 400% its normal level, and it is the first ever smog alert in the United States. Oh, wait, way to go, Big Apple, New York City. Of yep. course- L.A. would top that. (laughs) Um, Yep. So clearly another interesting week in world history while our crew is off at Vasquez Rocks again. Again. Filming Star Trek. (laughs) You know, it it really is amazing when you we talk about these episodes and we talk about what was going on in the world at the time. I mean, the 60s, I would say the 60s started with the assassination of uh, JFK and the 60s ended with the Rolling Stone concert at Altima, where the Hells Angels killed the fan. Uh, that's what, six years, six and a half years? Mm-hmm. And it feels like a, a, a hundred years <laughs> happened in those six and a half years. It's really something. Would you like to enter the alternative factor? You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> for the first time, I'm, I, I proceed with cautious optimism. <laughs> <laughs> so we start on the bridge and we're hearing about this planet. Uh, Spock is giving his typical report on what's going on. One thing he says, by the way, is that it has an oxygen hydrogen atmosphere, which any science person knows hydrogen and oxygen is will burst into flames. <laughs> we, we live in an oxygen nitrogen right. atmosphere. That's fine. We don't, you don't want to be like, literally like you, you scrape your foot on a rock and like the world's going to burst into flames. So that's maybe not that healthy a place. Yeah, The science from the very beginning is a little off on this one. And then there's this moment where we're doing our regular shipboard things. And then Spock sees something right before it happens and says, captain. And then this thing that we're going to see over and over and over again hits the ship shakes. There's weird space stuff superimposed and. Then it's over, and Kirk turns to Spock, and Spock manages to get out. Incredible, Captain. And then it hits us again. So what's happening here is something not just on a shipwide scale, but on on a universal scale. So right here in the teaser, you know, this is a teaser that I mean, unfortunately, when we find out what's really going on, it doesn't doesn't quite hold up. But the stakes are obviously very very high. The fact that Spock says twice. For a split second each time, everything within range of our instruments seemed on the verge of winking out. I want facts, not poetry. I have given you the facts, Captain. What you're describing is non-existence. 
those are pretty high stakes. So, man, this is this is going to be a really good episode. Sure. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, we go into our regular Kirk stuff. We put, go on alert status and we're starting to look around and Spock sees that there's now suddenly a what he calls a life object on the planet, which is weird because a minute ago we did a scan and there was no life on the pl- planet. And Spock says, this reading began at approximately the moment that the pulsation phenomenon began to subside. And Kirk asks, and again, this goes into, here's a, here's a good rule of screenwriting. A good rule of screenwriting is that if you can lose a line and nobody will notice, that line probably wasn't necessary. Is that, is that part of the show, Don't Tell? No, that would be a different, the, literally, I have a, an entire chapter in the book I'm writing on directing on Show, Don't Tell, don't get me started. It is one of the most important things in all of filmmaking. I have so much to say about it, and I'm going to say none of it at the moment. But no, no yeah. this is not show, don't tell. This is just, in general, most screenplays are too long because you're desperately trying to get all of these ideas and great moments into your story. And so you're continually cutting down and frequently, you know, the expression is you kill your darlings, that you, you're going to have to cut out things that you love in order to tighten it up and fit it into the thing you want to fit it into. If you have extra lines, you have a real problem because what it means is you're having to expand because your story isn't good enough. And this is an example of it. There's a whole conversation of Spock saying, Things about this life object, that it's a living being, he gives its temperature, its mass, electrical impulses, its movement, and then says, it's apparently human. It's like, well, why did you have to say all that? <laughs> like, why did you just say, there's a, instead of saying there's a life object and going through all this stuff, you could just say, there's, a, there's now a human, a life form, a human life form on the planet. Well, you're, you're, you're foreshadowing a problem, Steve, that, that I see very, very common with the rest of this episode. The whole episode. The whole episode is written like that. Things are over-explained. Yep. And the episode is so convoluted and so confusing that, sure, when I was a kid and I was watching it, I was definitely confused, mostly because I couldn't tell the two Lazaruses apart. Yep. Uh, but even watching it to prep for this episode, and I felt like, man, I haven't seen... You know, sometimes like you have a bad memory of something that you watched and then you're going to go back and like, oh, maybe it wasn't as bad as I remember it being. No, this one is as bad yeah, as I remember bad. it being. It's bad. I mean, and then he says, and it's, you know, after saying all this, he says, and its appearance coincided with this winking out, which is literally what you said a second ago. You started this by saying the moment the pulsation phenomenon began to subside, it, it appeared. It's like, well, now we're just repeating ourselves over and over again. And I don't want to repeat myself too much about repeating yourself, <laughs> but it is just a, one of the things that is weighing this episode down. And <laughs> I love the moment where Kirk says, could this being present any danger to the ship? And Spock says, possible. <laughs> Very possible. It's like the whole universe just shook. Like, it seems like this is, there's big, big stuff going on. And then we get a message that there's a general alert from Starfleet. I don't know what that means. It's nothing we see anywhere else in the series, I think. And then asks Uhura, have we heard anything from Starfleet? Let me know. And then says, communications, priority one. I don't know what that means. I don't know why we're doing it. Like, I don't understand what's going on here. Well, I hear priority one and just instinctively, I think, okay, priority one. That's a, that's a pretty top priority. Does yeah. it get top more top than priority one? <laughs> it's number one. And that is the end of our teaser. You know, listen, we talked about some of the teasers 
from the first season that we talked about so far, uh, like, you know, Miri uh, is and and Conscience of the King, you know, those teasers are kind of weak. But from the very beginning of the alternative factor, you get the sense that this is an episode that's trying really hard. They're trying really hard to make this episode big, to make the stakes huge, and that this was going just to be an epic, massive episode. And right from the beginning, I was already feeling, you know, during my rewatch of it, that just it's already feeling a little on the overwritten side. Yep. Yep. And we start act one. We're down on the planet and we are back at Vasquez Rocks. We are back at Vasquez Rocks. And for the third time, and these scenes of Vasquez Rocks commence on the fifth day of filming for this episode. They did a lot of stuff uh, on stage nine at Desilu before that. And we see the dome of Lazarus's timeship, and we're hearing the music. The music cue that they use a lot throughout this episode right. was used uh, as a Ruck's theme mm. in What Are Little Girls Made Of? And if the dome from Lazarus's timeship looks familiar, uh, you know, if you watched uh, the series many times, it was later reused for the providers in the Gamesters of Triskelion. Oh, interesting. By the way, do you know why they went back to Vasquez Rocks so much, like these three episodes? Uh, I want to say because it looked really cool. <laughs> See, I think this is a tremendous mistake. I think that if you want to return to a location and pretend it's somewhere else, it can't be that recognizable. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's like if you think about MASH, all of it was shot in the hills near Los Angeles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sometimes they were far from the camp and sometimes it was right next to the camp and sometimes they were out on a Jeep in the middle of nowhere. And we had no idea. They were probably shooting around the hill, a hundred yards away from the camp for all of it. And we never noticed that they're reusing the, the same location because it's pretty nondescript. It's mm-hmm. these are, This is how Korea apparently were, looks according to MASH. Vasquez Rocks is really specific. For sure. And it yeah. is a, you pick it because it is such a recognizable landmark. And so to have it in three episodes, almost back to back, it's like, that's yeah, true. It's shore leave. Then we not there for Squire Gothos. Then we're back for arena. And now we're back again. Now they didn't air them in this order. So maybe that would have been better, but it's like, you can't, it doesn't make any sense to say all these planets look like this very specific thing. Completely agree. Completely agree. Now the thing about shore leave is that, you know, the uh, large portion of shore leave was actually shot on the Africa USA set, which looks like a garden of yeah, paradise. Totally. Uh, and maybe they should have stayed there, but, uh, but, you know, and with arena, they, they use such a specific portion of Vasquez rocks to make it look like an alien asteroid that, and that's the reason why when people think of Vasquez rocks, they think of arena, but yeah. they think of the other Star Trek episodes that were there. But also, I mean, let's face it. I don't think anybody, anybody who worked on this show ever expected people like you and me and everyone listening to enterprise incidents to dissect these shows to within an inch of their life. <laughs> you know, that's a hundred percent true, but here's what I'll say is that it is very clear that they didn't want to treat this show like lost in space, like lost in space was like, it's a kid show. Nobody's going to know. We're going to use, reuse the same plots, the same sets. We're going to reuse them over and over again. It's fine. It is very clear for the first 20 episodes of Star Trek that they're taking this thing real seriously in terms of design, in terms of costume, in terms of, you know, what the stories are. And so the, this one is a mistake. Like, and 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 it, maybe it's just because we didn't do that much sci-fi then. And now we know. It's like, if you look at, 
all the rest of the Star Trek and most science fiction, if you go to a new planet, that planet is unique, you know, and maybe they couldn't afford to be so unique, you know, in the original Star Trek, but it would have helped. But anyway, we, sh- we have a long, much too long shot as we <laughs> to establish this planet. And then we get to meet Lazarus. Lazarus. And from the very beginning, from the very first moment we meet Lazarus, he's already over the top and annoying you came you came he's like a like acting like a religious freak yeah uh, uh, and, and he kind of acts like way through throughout the episode so lazarus yes played by robert brown not not who was originally cast as lazarus and this is where the backstory to the alternative factor steve gets very 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 interesting and makes the making of this episode far more fascinating than the episode itself. The original choice to play Lazarus was John Drew Barrymore. Wow. So John Drew Barrymore was the son of John Barrymore and Dolores Costello, and he is the father of actress Drew Barrymore. He was the original choice, and uh, when he went in, the first day of filming for the alternative factor, the character of Lazarus was not in the scenes. So Barrymore went in for his costume fitting and he was not needed. He was not needed until day two of filming. Day two would have been November 17th, but he went on day one for his costume fitting. And then after his fitting, he got the script and then that's when he quit. That's when he quit the alternative factor. He walked away saying that there were too many script changes and the script changes altered his character. And this was not, it's not what he signed up for basically. So like talk about being left high and dry. They already started filming the episode and their guest actor is basically like took a hike and like very, very irresponsible, very unprofessional. So what the hell were you going to do? What are we going to do? Well, Robert Brown was cast as the new Lazarus, and he was cast at 11 p.m. the night before on November 16th. This is after Barrymore had had split, and he was told to be on the set and ready to go the next morning with no rehearsal. Poor guy. I yep. mean, what are you supposed to do? So Gene Roddenberry had called him. Okay, and this is where the story gets really interesting. So Gene Roddenberry calls Robert Brown and he says, Shatner gave me your number. Uh, William Shatner and Robert Brown knew each other from an unsold pilot that they filmed back in 1962 called Colossus. So that's how he knew each other. So Shatner said, call this guy. He'll be able to get the job done. Uh, Initially, Robert Brown said, "I I have no prep. I, you know, I can't do this. This is not going to work. Uh, you know, please, I, I can't do this. So Gene Roddenberry said, look, I will pay you what William Shatner makes to do this episode. Wow. Now, Shatner had it in his contract that no one else was allowed to make more than him, not even Leonard Nimoy. So, of course, it would have been really, really bad if Shatner found out that Roddenberry was going to pay Robert Brown more than what Shatner made. So officially, Roddenberry said, I'll pay you what Shatner makes. But he also gave him a little bit extra out of his own pocket. And that is how they got Robert Brown. 
What had he done? Was he, uh, I mean, like, why is he worth this much money? Well, I guess he was the only one available, but uh, again, wait, wait, Shatner, Shatner told Uh, Roddenberry, you know, get this guy. So, you know, Roddenberry probably thinks, well, if if Bill Shatner, my, my captain, my skipper is telling me to call Robert Brown, I'm going to call Robert Brown. Now, now Robert Brown had done some TV. He did Perry Mason. He did Wagon Train. He did Bonanza. But again, he had that, that relationship with Shatner on Colossus, even though that pilot didn't sell. So, so he, he was the replacement and, uh, you know, he went into the alternative factor with no preparation at all. And I think over the years, Robert Brown has unfairly taken the brunt of the criticism for why the alternative factor doesn't work. And yes, his performance is way off the mark here, but there are a lot of reasons why the alternative factor does not work. But, you know, he walked into the situation with no prep at all. You know, uh, he was basically the the hero saving the day so they could actually film the episode. And uh, and that's that's what happened. I actually think he might have been a better actor than we give him credit for. And I think uh, I tend to not blame actors. I don't know. I tend to blame scripts and directors first. There's a lot to blame here you know, with the script. And, and so, because what's interesting, we see him right at this beginning. He comes out acting fairly crazed in this strange sort of religious way. Thank the heavens. There's still time. It's not too late. We can still stop him. And then he suddenly goes faint and screams and falls behind some rocks. First of many times he will do that. (laughs) And one of the things that doesn't make sense to me is that we have these big winking out moments where the whole universe shakes. And then we also have these moments where he switches places or meets the anti-Lazarus. Spoiler alert, there is another version of Lazarus that is from the antimatter universe. Mm -hmm. What I can't tell is, or what I don't think they're consistent about is the moments where he switches places sometimes has the same special effects with the weird space stuff, but nobody is reacting like the universe is winking out. And sometimes they are, and sometimes they're reacting in different ways. It's all totally, totally inconsistent. I I completely agree. There are moments like when they're on the planet, like just now where the winking out moment is felt by everybody. And then there are moments later on the, on the enterprise when these Lazarus is walking around the corridors where there's a winking out and, and the ship doesn't really shake at all. doesn't go into red alert at all. That's definitely a problem. The other problem, Steve, is that as these winking out moments happen and the sort of crazed Lazarus is replaced by the sane Lazarus, there's not enough of a dynamic in either of those performances to tell each Lazarus apart. They're acting a little too similar until the very end when Kirk goes to the antimatter universe and meets the same Lazarus where Robert Brown's performance is actually very, very good. Well, that's, that's, that's exactly my point yeah. is that in that it's when he's being asked to be the crazed person that he's not very good. And to do this weird feint, it's terrible. He yeah. does a bad job. Yeah. But I actually think, you know, it's funny. Something I said in Shore Leave is in general, you want to start small and then get bigger. You don't want to have the really weird things that will make people suspect certain things too early. The choice to make Lazarus act like a crazed religious person really hurts the show because there is no way you would trust this guy. And yet they continually do things that are stupid considering the guy is obviously a nut. Yep. And so you either have them not trust him 
or you turn down the nuttiness so that he seems more like a reasonable person, which I actually think would be the better choice because then you have Kirk being manipulated and he has to figure things out. He has more stuff to figure out. That's a really good point. So let's say that Robert Brown had more time to hone his performance. So let's say the evil Lazarus was portrayed as a, as a charismatic figure, not yes. a lunatic. Because you're right. The way that the evil Lazarus comes across is like, this guy's out of his goddamn mind. Uh, either I'm going to leave him here on the planet or I'm going to put him directly in the brig. But I wouldn't trust this guy as far as I could throw him. But if he changed his approach a little bit, and let's say, let's say that Lazarus was a little more like uh, uh, Dr. Tristan Adams. Right, exactly. In, in the uh, Dagger of the Mind. Yeah where this is a character who, you know, Kirk sticks up for, that whose charisma has has won the captain over. So if you had a situation where the evil Lazarus was this really charismatic figure that could incite a following, then it would make a whole lot more sense when Kirk sort of gives him the run of the ship. And you're right, there's the, the, the characters that we love make stupid decisions. They make stupid choices. Yep. And it's just weak writing. Absolutely. I, I, I think that Tristan Adams, Dr. Adams thing is a really, really good point. And, I'm, cause, and I want to revisit that in a moment. Because one of the things to learn here is you actually can learn why Star Trek works by seeing why it's not working, you know? And so we're on the bridge and we get a report from Lieutenant Masters about the dilithium crystals. And again, this is a line of pure exposition. Whatever that phenomenon was, it drained almost all of our crystals completely. It could mean trouble. It could mean trouble. <laughs> you have a talent for understatement, Lieutenant. Without full crystal power, our orbit will begin to decay in 10 hours. Reamplify immediately. Aye, aye, sir. Basically what they did in terms of screenwriting is they had a character say a stupid thing so that you could have another character give us some exposition that we need. <laughs> Again, that's not how you're supposed to do it. But I do like Lieutenant Masters. Okay. I like Lieutenant Masters a lot. And just from the underwritten performance in which actress Janet McLachlan is giving, you could tell that there is a very talented actor yep. behind this character who was underutilized. And, and I'll get into all that as we get further into, into our deep dive here. But Janet McLachlan was nominated for an NAACP Image Award for 1973's mm. Mari in which she was nominated as Best Actress in a Motion Picture. She won a Los Angeles-era Emmy for KCET's Voices of Our People in Celebration of Black Poetry in 1981. Mm. She was on TV, Love Thy Neighbor, Cagney and Lacey, Generations. She was in the film Tick, Tick, Tick with Jim Brown, Tightrope with Clint Eastwood, and The, Tur the 13th Floor. She has had... Uh, a very solid career as a character actor, but what we see of her in the alternative factor hints, just hints because of the power of the actress herself, that this could have been a great character. This yeah. could have been a character who could have recurred. Yep. And I think the fact that as we see her duties on the enterprise, again, just like we talked about Percy Rodriguez as Commodore Stone, yep. And you have Michelle Nichols sitting on the bridge on the Enterprise uh, as as a senior officer for communications. And now you have Janet McLaughlin playing Lieutenant Masters, a woman of color in a prominent feature position. And here's the thing, like most of the most of the, the women on Star Trek, 
regardless of their race, they always wore wigs. Even like look at Grace Lee Whitney. I saw that. I was thinking about this too. Okay, so so like all the women, most of them anyway, wore wigs, or they would they would make their hair up to be kind of sixties, but a futuristic look of the sixties. Right. But Jad McLaughlin is using her natural short hair, and that was may seem like not not a big deal at all, but it was actually a big deal for the mid-1960s, to have a woman of color using her natural look on a show like Star Trek. I mean, this is one of the, if not the biggest merit of all, is this character, Lieutenant Masters. And it just makes me wonder, well, as we get into, as we get further into it, and we see some of the some of the big changes that went along with the story, Lieutenant Masters was supposed to have a very, very big role in this episode. Mm. And for a couple of reasons, it was really downplayed. And what they should have done was sort of like paid her to not be in the episode and used her character in a later episode Mm. where where it really would have mattered. It's interesting you bring up because I noticed the hair, too, and I don't know how much natural African-American hair on women had been seen on television. And I... I'm not even going to begin to get into the issues of hair in the African-American community and American culture, but there is a lot, there's a lot, a lot there. And so showing her with her natural hair in 1967, when this came out, it's a big deal because this is like, I think a few episodes ago, the black Panther party was formed. That's right. Like there is a transformation in, in within the African-American community through the civil rights movement, moving through the sixties and it's totally small, but her hair is a part of that. And, and none of it, by the way, none of it, the, the color of her skin, the, the look of her hair, not nothing. It's just, yep. just who she is. And, and she is a professional. She, she's got a job to do, a very important job, as we see on the Enterprise. By the way, this whole thing about, about regeneration of the crystals, it just occurred to me that regeneration of the crystals, we, we kind of – Saw that a little bit in Alana of Troyes in the third season mm-hmm. when they're using the crystals from, from her uh, necklace, yeah. from her necklace. But but the only time we really saw the prospect of regeneration of crystals was can you guess? Don't know. Star Trek for the voyage home. Oh yes, it is because when the Klingon we ship to go goes find back, the nuclear vessels, they have find the nuclear vessels to use the radiation to regenerate the crystals so they can go back to the future. So it just occurred to me that's while you were discussing the, the breakdown of that moment, I was like, wait a minute. That's what they did in Star Trek four. Um, so we have a little bit of uh, techno babble with Scott. With Spock, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we already had Kirk call out that communications were on priority one. And now we hear from Starfleet command that they are contacting with code factor one. And there's a big dramatic moment and they go repeat code factor one invasion status. Invasion. Okay, this is a big deal. I mean, first of all, you have Lazarus, and now you have Commodore Barstow, played by Richard Durr, who was in movies like When Worlds Collide, American Jiggle, and Firefox, and he's giving a code factor one invasion status. Now, we we saw Ambassador Ferris in the Galileo 7. That was the first time that we kind of saw Kirk answering to a higher power, but this notion of Starfleet Command of a of the 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 top top the uh the 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 big people in charge of the federation and in starfleet and you you see 
you know, Kirk's demeanor in addressing his superior officer is obviously very different than he was talking to Ferris on the bridge right. of the Enterprise. Uh, so now he's he's under orders and he's basically being told that he's the bait and the Enterprise is expendable. This makes no sense <laughs> no, whatsoever. It <laughs> it's so bad. So we hear this thing, you know, code one and Kirk says battle stations for what? There is nothing to battle. Like there's nothing there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We yeah. have what essentially seems like there's like been a galactic earthquake, right? Everything sh- kind of something has happened. Why are they talking about an invasion? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What evidence of an invasion is there? There's nobody invading. This doesn't make sense. And yet this becomes a key plot point that's going to come back multiple times. It's like what evidence do we have of this? There's even the moment they're talking about was this mechanical was this biological how did this thing happen and he asked kirk and kirk says i have considered all the alternatives really what alternatives have you considered (laughs) you literally the last thing spock said is i have no idea what this is and now kirk says i've considered all the alternatives my best guess is it could be a prelude to invasion Okay, now let's look Why? at this. Why, Scott? <laughs> but 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 this this prelude to invasion was ex- much more obvious in Balance of Terror with the Absolutely. Romulans. It was much more obvious in the episode that preceded this arena with the Gorn. A hundred percent. Where it turns out that we were they weren't invading us; we were invading them. That was the twist. So so yeah, a bit of a stretch here, but. You know, the thing with Balance of Terror is, you know, when they were when when Kirk is on the bridge and he and he's addressing the crew and and he says that these outposts and this vessel will be considered expendable. Right. That was Kirk's choice. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, I see I always what I always liked about the original series is that for the most for most of the time, you got the sense that the Enterprise was the only ship out where it was. It was really on its own in uncharted space and you know, you can have moments like like Square Gothos, like Return to Tomorrow, where they are just so way the hell out right. there. Okay. No and help. they are on yeah. their own. Uh, you know, like I think in a lot of the later shows, there are so many starships and so many star bases that that it just it just doesn't feel the notion of being out in far out deep into the galaxy just doesn't feel as special as it did in the original series, where where the Enterprise what it was a special ship like, like right. this is the only ship out there and and like you said it makes it makes no sense why they're they're calling battle stations for a possible invasion based on what i i just i never understood that well and here's the thing and again if you wanted to, if you wanted it to be we're worried about an invasion then you have to set up why you might be worried for an invasion. So if you move the scene with Kirk and Spock where they talk about, which you're going to get to a little bit later, about this is a doorway between universes. If you move that into Act 1, and they've already figured out a doorway is opening with the antimatter universe, and if Kirk says, the real question is, what could come through that doorway? Now we're in a place where we're worried about invasion. Right. You yeah. Know? And Good then point. this scene mm. might make sense. But it, they don't know that yet. And because they don't know that, there's no reason for an invasion. The other thing that happens is they say, oh, so you mean our ship is bait. How is it bait? Right. In order to have bait, bait means that there's something that wants you. Whether it's, you know, the the little fly that you have to get the, uh, you know, the fish to take a bite. You have, Bait is something that somebody wants. Why is the Enterprise bait? 
For who? They yeah. don't know what it is. It literally, again, makes no sense. There's so much about the alternative factor in which there's there's so much written, too much is written, and nothing is there to back it up. Not enough is there to back it yep. up. And this is a great example why. So we go like, okay, I guess after we get done with the Commodore, it's like, well, I think we probably should explore the planet some more. So Spock says he's going to head down to do some searching, and Kirk is going to talk to our unexpected guest. That's how I came to be down there, Captain. Pursuing the devil's own spawn. A thing I've chased across the universe. He's humanoid. Outside. But inside, he's a hideous, murdering monster. It sounds like he's out of his mind, doesn't he? Out of his mind. Yep. Well, this is why I love that you brought up Dr. Adams. And what do we say about Dr. Adams? He was a great liar. Is Mm -hmm. that he really understood what he needed to say to to get Kirk to do what he wanted him to do. Because And also, this guy's withholding all the important information, right? He doesn't want to tell it to Kirk. Well, that important information actually would help him if, like Dr. Adams, he told Kirk what he wanted to hear. Listen, this creature is from another universe. What's happening is that the, there's a corridor opening up, which I just said we wanted to move to Act 1 anyway. So he explains this is what's going on. It is going to be he and his minions are going to invade. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why we have to. And then that becomes the truth that they're dealing with. And if he's really straight and really convincing, he gets Kirk on his side. And then Kirk reports to the Commodore and says, Commodore, I think we need to be worried about an invasion. Yeah, good point. That's you know? a really good point. And then that would have played into what we've seen uh, happen more often in, in more, more recent episodes, especially the, the Gene Kuhn episodes where Kirk is wrong and he realizes he yep. is wrong and he has to correct the situation. I mean, I love when I love those episodes when, you know, our, our hero is wrong and he learns from it. But that doesn't happen no, here. <laughs> no. Before we picked you up, our ship sustained a number of incredible effects. That was he. He's death. Anti-life, he lives to destroy. And then he says, and again, this is to your point, he's nuts. He says, then you'll join me in my holy cause. Help me in visiting justice and vengeance upon him. My only cause is the safety of my ship and the mission we're on. I'm trying to think. So if this episode was filmed in in November of 1966, was there, you know, I'm trying to think of like, like Jamestown. Mm -hmm. uh, And I'm trying to think of Jonestown. Uh, yeah, re- uh, right. Uh, yeah. Like religious zealots who inspired a whole following, like, you know, like what we see now uh, with a lot of these uh, religious fractions. Like, was there something there? Did, did something happen around the time in the 60s that could have inspired Robert Brown to take that approach with Lazarus? I think he was directed. To t- it's in the it's in the dialogue. It's, yeah. That's why I go, it's not him. I mean, if you have dialogue that says, has a line like, then you'll join me in my holy cause, help me in visiting justice and vengeance mm, yeah, upon there him. In the dialogue. That's what he's being told to do by the script. Um, as far as whether, I mean, there have always been religious zealots. That's certainly throughout history <laughs> over and over and over again. We can find evidence of them. I can't think of a particular example in the mid 60s. Certainly nothing as terrifying as Jonestown was. Um, I can't think of one that would, Makes sense. But Kirk then says, okay, come beam down with me. There are elements of this next scene I do like, (laughs) Uh, which is we find Spock. And again, this is just bad writing. Anything from our guest? According to him, there's a creature of some sort down here, a human arm. And Spock says, yeah, Uhura already told me that. 
It's like, well, if we already told you that, why did you ask? Right. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. fact, why did we have uh, yeah. any of this conversation? <laughs> it was all unnecessary. And then uh, we hear scans indicate no living being on the planet. I suggest, Captain, that you've been lied to. Why would Spock say that in front of Lazarus? It doesn't make sense. You would always want to report that privately to the mm-hmm. captain because mm-hmm. that gives the captain the choice of whether or not how he's going to use that information. But then Lazarus has a reaction to this. Um, and I love Spock's line. This is maybe one of the few moments I do like. I fail to comprehend your indignation, sir. I've simply made the logical deduction that you are a liar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Spock calling him out. Yeah, you're a liar. Uh, you know, the all this uh, going up, the, the, they're going up to the Enterprise. They're beamed back down. They're going up. They're beamed back down. And they're walking around looking for, you know. I don't know. It just, it just like, what are they doing? It's meandering. It just like, ah, uh, it just pains me just to see Star Trek not work in yep. such a painfully obvious way. And then in the midst of all this, the crazy effect hits. And this one does affect our people to some degree. And then Lazarus is in some strange negative space, you know, which is literally we're looking at the negative film print. We're looking we're at the corridor now. Yeah. So this is the corridor between that connects the two universes that we see both Lazaruses now fighting each other. And the way the effect for the corridor was done was actually at the suggestion of Robert H. Justman, who said to use reverse polarity on the effect, on the print, mm. to make it look like like this. And it that actually worked pretty well. I think it totally works well. I think the effects going in and out of it, we do the spinny thing and the star thing and the, uh, and the dissolves and the blurs. I think a lot of that comes off real cheesy. Yeah, it does. But I think them fighting in slow-mo in this negative corridor space, I think is cool. And he staggers and there's lightning sounds because now apparently this causes storms, you know, like it can, they continue to make this, these moments happen, be whatever it is they want them to be. Yeah, it's at not that consistent. Moment. Yeah. It's definitely not consistent. And then we have the, you know, what I can only describe is like the spinning newspaper effect where the thing spins in and out like you would get or like it's in uh, in 1966, Batman, like the spinning bat symbol yeah. coming in and out. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what this looks like. <laughs> totally. Um, you're right. And now we're back into our world again. And Lazarus appears. And strangely enough, the exact same thing happens. He falls. Again. Again. <laughs> and he comes to and he sort of ends the act with this manic kill, 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 kill. It just was like like it's so over the top. Everything it they again, this episode feels like it's trying too hard to cover up its many shortcomings. And it all it does is make those shortcomings more obvious. I a hundred percent agree. And it makes our characters look stupider. Because, yeah, they, <laughs> because they are not dealing with the situation the way they should be. Uh, it's act two and we're in sick bay. And now we see Lazarus with a bandage on his head. And this is going to be the key, the key to understanding who is the, which Lazarus as we go forward. By the way, what I had to do is I went through again after taking all my notes, I had to go through it again and make sure I always knew which Lazarus was which. Good. I'm glad you did that because I still, to this day, after 50 years of watching this episode, I still can't tell. It doesn't make sense. So much of it doesn't make sense. Assuming there is a humanoid, uh, something, how does he do it? He has no weapons, no power. Captain, I only know for certain that the occurrence of the phenomenon 
coincides exactly with the moments that Lazarus has his alleged confrontations. So here's my question, Scott, yes. and I don't expect you to have an answer okay. because it does, I'll try. there is no I'll answer. Try. <laughs> we know that he's going to use dilithium crystals to open up this corridor. Mm-hmm. Why is this corridor opening when it is opening? Oh my God, you're right. Well, wait a minute. Okay, wait, hang on, hang okay. on. Okay. Go for it, go for it. <laughs> so the corridor has been opening on its own, right? And what Lazarus wants to do is use the crystals to control when he's going to open it so he can defeat the Lazarus that he's out to get. But here's my question. Here's <laughs> okay. my question. I think that explanation is pretty good. Okay. I have, I have okay. other because, problems with it. But. Because up to this point, like when we see, like, especially when we're on the planet, the, the corridor just opens. And we're and at other moments when Lazarus is on the Enterprise, the corridor just opens, but be, it's beyond his control. The the crystals will allow him to control when the corridor is going to open. But uh, what I don't understand is when the Lazarus from the antimatter universe comes into our universe, matter and antimatter cannot exist in the same place. No, this makes no sense. I hundred. Uh, I, oh, okay, yeah. so so how is the antimatter Lazarus in our universe? Without there being like a cataclysmic uh, explosion, I mean, it, that that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Matter and antimatter uh, cannot come together, but unless it's controlled in the way like it is on the warp engines of the Enterprise, that's how they go to warp speed because they bring matter and antimatter together. And just like Scotty said, you know, in the nick of time, he's mixing matter and antimatter, right. but you can't do it cold, or you'll go up in the biggest implosion anyway. Um, but there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of things that just don't make any sense. Steve. So I want to go back to your explanation, which I think is a pretty good one hmm. of that. There are that there is the corridor is opening, closing, but it's not in anyone's control. It's somewhat random. And that maybe the idea is that once they opened it the first time, which set this whole thing in motion, they were no longer in control of it. What doesn't make sense about that? How long have these two Lazaruses been at it? That's a great question. How long have they been at? Well, it can't have been that long because if if it had if it had existed before the beginning of this episode, they still would have felt the exactly shakes somewhere else. Like I mean, the Enterprise could have been. You we know, say this is affecting the whole universe. If it's affecting the whole universe, then any time the the corridor opened, it, they would have felt it. The Enterprise would have felt it, and everyone, every every starship, every planet. You know, even the Klingons and the Romulans would have yep. felt it because this is universal. So I think that that it must have really started at the beginning of this episode. Which doesn't make any sense. Which I agree. Logically, that makes sense. But it doesn't make any sense in the terms of the way the characters talk about what's going on. Mm-hmm. The implication there is that they have been battling forever. Like right. this has been going on a long time. Right. Right. You know? So 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 what we're hearing and what we're seeing are two different things. They don't, they don't and make sense. And it does not together. make sense. You're right. So now we're having a conversation with McCoy. Basically what he says is, I treated Lazarus. He had a deep abrasion on his forehead, bandaged it. I went to my room, and when I came back, there was no bandage. Not even a bruise. It was like he had never been injured. Now here's the thing that I don't understand. If Dr. McCoy is telling Captain Kirk this, and Dr. McCoy is a pretty smart guy, why does Kirk doubt him? Kirk doubts his chief medical officer and it doesn't make sense. A moment feels contrived to me. And it's in a situation where the fate of the universe depends upon things. And we think this Lazarus guy is right at the middle of it. 
Therefore, any piece of information has got to be important. He act, and he actually thinks that McCoy is joking repeatedly. And it's like, no, McCoy is clearly not joking. Here's another thing. Okay, you remember 15 minutes ago when you brought up Show, Don't Tell, and I said, I'm not going to talk about Show, Don't Tell. It's too complicated. <laughs> uh -oh. Now I'm going to talk about it. Ah, here we go. <laughs> um, so Show, Don't Tell, the basic meaning is that it's better to show things visually than just tell the audience information. So if I said like, you know, my car just broke down, I could explain my car just broke down and I spent 20 minutes having to try to fix it. And I could tell you all that, but it would be more interesting to watch the car break down. That would be, that's an example of show, don't tell. I could go on literally forever on this topic, but I'm not going to. So what we have here in this scene is tell, not show. Mm -hmm. Instead of having McCoy say, I, there was a bandage on him. And then when I looked, there was no bandage. Why not show right. McCoy walk into the room and see no bandage? Yeah. Like, like have him be like, wait a minute. Like have him, like you could see the look on his face. You could see the look right. on McCoy's face where he clearly is like second guessing himself instead of just telling Captain Kirk. Well, and because we don't actually see antimatter Lazarus until the next scene. And in the next scene, we're in the rec room. And yes, now we see Lazarus. He doesn't have the wound. So somewhere after Bones treated him, but before this moment, we had another winking out, but not one that the Enterprise felt. What? So why do we feel it sometimes and not others? That doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. The other thing that doesn't make any sense to me at all, Steve, is why the hell are they letting Lazarus roam freely around the Enterprise without any security with him or not confining him to his, to some quarters or even keeping him in the brig? Just because clearly the universe is at stake. Clearly this guy's got to be the cause of it in some way. And they're just letting him, and, and he's clearly out of his mind. He's just sitting having lunch. And he's just sitting there having lunch in the work room now. Well, and, and just to add to that, I'm on a ship with 430 people who all wear the same outfits. And here's this dude clearly not wearing a Starfleet outfit. I never seen him before. He's got a weird beard. The universe is at stake and he's sitting having lunch in the rec room. I would probably call up like, Hey, security captain somebody yeah there's a dude yeah yeah yeah. i don't know who he is and by the way you brought up room. his beard oh the beard if there's one thing that's inconsistent it's terrible throughout this episode it's the beard sometimes it's thick sometimes it's thin uh fred phillips who did the makeup uh real lapse in judgment no, in, in putting that beard. yeah it's just it's just bad now now here's something really interesting about the alternative factor okay so we're back in the rec room and we're back with uh, Janet McLachlan, who plays uh, uh, the lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Masters. Originally, Lieutenant Masters was going to be a chemist in which she wore the blue uniform. But then she was changed to engineering. Mm -hmm. So when they changed the character to be more engineering, they should have also changed the uniform to be red. Right. But they kept the blue. But the bigger problem or the bigger issue here is that the earlier versions of the outlines in the script called for a romance, a romantic relationship to happen between Lieutenant Masters and Lazarus. Now, in the earlier versions, was going to have Lieutenant Masters was going to conspire with Lazarus to help him get the dilithium crystals he needed. So let's just backpedal a little here and just describe the scene. You have a larger-than-life figure who is charismatic enough to influence an officer of the Enterprise to fall in love with him 
and to help him uh, basically conspire against the Enterprise to get what he needed. What does that sound like to you? It's Space Seed. It is absolutely Space Seed. And that was a big concern of Roddenberry. It was so similar to Marla McIvers and Khan in Space Seed. So they couldn't really have two episodes so close together where the same thing was basically a plot point in both episodes. And at this point, both Space Seed and the alternative factor were, were in deep into development. So because the betrayal was deemed more crucial to the outcome of Space Seed, it stayed in Space Seed and it was dropped from the alternative factor. Now, let's just say that the romance between Lieutenant Masters and Lazarus had stayed in space in uh, the alternative factor, that would have made the alternative factor, this very, very subpar episode, the first interracial love affair on mm. TV. Oh. That's if it stayed. And that brings me to another point. Okay. That while the romance was still in the script, NBC started getting nervous about that interracial love affair. And this was a year before, you know, guess who's coming to dinner? Right. So there was basically a taboo to have that kind of thing on TV back in, you know, ultimately 1967 when it aired. But while it was being developed and was in about to go into production, producer Gene Kuhn started getting calls from NBC to either replace Masters with a white actress or to drop the romance completely. And Gene Kuhn, instead of taking a stand, he caved and he dropped the romance and he totally under underutilized Janet McLaughlin as an actress. And a moment that really would have stood out. I mean, can you just imagine if there was a lot more preparation that went into this episode? If John Drew Barrymore hadn't dropped out, forcing everybody to be so on edge and play catch up and be so worried about the production, there's potential here for something that could have been a really, really good, maybe even a great episode instead of the the big swing in the miss that this episode really is. Okay, well, let's go back now. Let's go back to John Drew Barrymore. Let's say you get this script and it has the first interracial relationship ever to be on television. And you go, going. And you go, oh, wow, this is interesting. You know, guy from a storied acting family. And he goes, this is, there's something here. And then right before you go to shoot, the whole reason you took the gig gets taken out. That is an excellent point. Now, let's just say that Barrymore knew that Masters was going to be played by a black actress. And now he finds out that the romance with his white character and this black character is gone. And that could have been possibly the reason why he said this is not what I signed up for. And he balked and he walked away. That absolutely could have been a reason. But well, frankly, even if it isn't, even if he didn't know about the interracial part, it's still a massive change. Right. right. From, the romance is gone. From the romance thing to I'm being a weird religious crazy person. Absolutely. Because the weird religious crazy person wouldn't work with the romance. Lieutenant Masters is not falling in love with the version of Lazarus that we see here. That would not have been believable it at all. It would not work. What, what works, and obviously we're going to see it in Space Seed, is you have to have a charismatic figure. He has to, and this goes back again to what I was saying if I were rewriting this episode, he has to be persuasive. You have to believe in him. 
If you don't believe in him, nobody's going to fall in love with him. And so that means that they destroyed. I mean, we ha- I haven't read the original script. I, maybe you have. I know you do a ton of research for these things, but <laughs> they the, it's it sounds like they might very well have ripped the spine out of the character. Uh, well, they they also in effect ripped the spine out of the script. Yeah. By dropping the romance, because if let's just say even if even if let's say Barrymore dropped out for other reasons, you know who knows. Uh, and Robert Brown came on. If Robert Brown got a script that called for his character to have be so charismatic that he he influences a crew member of the Enterprise to mm-hmm. betray her captain, he would have played that character differently yep. and played it, the character more charismatic, like Ricardo Montalban Khan, or again like uh, Doctor Adams yep. in. What are, in the dagger of the mind. Well, I wasn't sure when to bring this up, but I'm going to bring it up now, which is that one of the big problems in this episode, in addition to the ones we've already talked about, <laughs> is that it's not personal. And here's what I mean by this. If we think of basically all the Star Trek episodes we've been through, there is an element that is personal. It's not just that Kirk has to battle a god in where no man's gone before. It's that he has to kill his best friend. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. even in lesser episodes, like what are little girls made of, Roddenberry makes the choice to replace some random character with Christine Chapel, who has to face her long lost love there in every single episode. There is a personal element. It's styles and racism in balance of terror. It's Riley. It's Kirk's need for vengeance and conscience of the King. It's always personal. Yes. The ship is going to be destroyed in naked time, but it's not the ship that's about to be destroyed. That makes naked time. Good. It's all the personal elements. Finnegan and Shirley. Exactly. Yeah. Throughout mm. all of the episodes, Finney and court martial Spock's relationship to Pike and menagerie. All of them have personal elements. There's nothing personal here. You're absolutely so friggin' right. The personal stakes. There's no, I mean, like universally, the stakes are pretty damn high. Really high. But but personally, in a way that we that we often feel more personally vested to the episodes because of the characters we care about, that is not present at all. Right. And and I and I just want to say, you know, I'm I'm really thinking about about your your epiphany about maybe that was why Barrymore dropped out was because the romance was dropped. That is a big possibility because if the romance was dropped, if he read scripts that featured his romance and then he gets a final script, the day that he goes in for his costume fitting and he goes through the script and the the romance isn't there and he's probably thinking, what the hell is this? What happened to the romance? I'm not doing this. And he walked away. That is is a, a, a very possible theory about why he felt so charged to walk away at the 11th hour. It's interesting too, because of course I knew that he had walked, walked away from this episode. Uh, and I think we've always sort of painted him as a villain. Oh, you quit. you left the show in the lurch. How dare you? Yeah. Uh, but maybe it's more complicated than that. Yeah, absolutely. That makes more sense than anything. You know, much like an episode of Star Trek, when you look at things a little closer, you find out that maybe people aren't just divided into bad guys and good guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a gray zone here. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, but in the rec room, Lazarus overhears something about the dilithium crystals. This is an important plot point. And then he walks off and again, he's hit by another thing. So Lazarus, who is anti-Lazarus in the rec room, is now back to being crazy Lazarus with the bandage. And that's where McCoy and Kirk find it. And, you know, D. Kelly does a nice acting job of sort of the, 
wait, I, there it is. Yeah, 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 exactly. But still can't make Kirk believe that this is not a joke. Again, contrived. It doesn't feel, it feels like, like it feels contrived. And then Kirk, for no reason that I can understand, says, Lazarus, why don't you come to me with, to the bridge? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take it to the, the sensitive place in the, in the entire starship. Come with me to the bridge. Come on, crazy guy. I don't trust you, you know, and, and you know, the, the fate of the universe, for some reason, lies in your hands. Come with me to the bridge. Um, and then, again, we have just more of this kind of techno babble of Spock saying there's things that don't make sense and that I don't understand. And Kirk says, another riddle. First Dr. McCoy, then you. And it's like, no, these guys are actually telling you things. It may be described, though loosely and inaccurately, as a rip in our universe. What? A kind of physical warp, Captain, in which none of our established physical laws apply with any regularity. Whew. It's a lot of, a lot of techno babble. It's a lot of techno babble, and, and there's going to be a lot more to come in the briefing room in, in one of the acts coming up. However, with the dilithium crystals, I was able to localize it. I think at this point, we should have locked in at least a little bit what dilithium crystals do. Um, and the idea that they are now, we're using them in our sensors to lo- to find stuff, that just seems kind of weird. The real reason that he's saying it is because we need uh, crazy Lazarus to hear the words dilithium crystals, just like we needed antimatter Lazarus to hear dilithium crystals in the rec room. That's why we're saying dilithium crystals. Right. Gotcha. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In other words, and this is, again, it happens in bad screenwriting all the time, which is that the exposition cart drives the horse. I got to say, with all this talk about dilithium crystals and with the the Enterprise being so at stake, like the rest of the universe, where the hell is Scotty? Yeah. Scotty, when they're, they're talking about dilithium crystals. I, get Scotty in there. Scotty, explain to me what what the hell is going on. Why does this guy want the dilithium crystals? Uh, it was it was a mistake for them. You know, granted the the supporting actors were not in every episode, but they were there when they needed to be. And this was an episode where Scotty James Dewan needed to be there. I I mean he's the chief engineer. You, you if you're start if you're talking about dilithium crystals and you know you're going to have this uh this set called the lithium crystal recharging section go up in flames i want my engineer to be on the spot well i think this is another side effect of the lieutenant master situation which is that i think scotty's not there because we needed to give stuff for lieutenant masters to do but then there's no reason for her to be there because you cut the love story and so really we'd be better off with scotty like just get rid <laughs> yeah. of Lieutenant Masters at this point. She's not doing anything. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's we right. both said it's great that she's in it, and really, you know, she's an intelligent character. And in terms of race, it's really great. In terms of story, I don't think she's delivering that much. Uh, but Lazarus, crazy Lazarus, is super excited about these dilithium crystals. Says that's the solution, and then he says, even, I beg of you, I plead, I demand, give me the crystals. Now, this is not a dude that I would trust. Right. But you're going to let him walk around the Enterprise. Keep, sure. keep letting him walk around on the Enterprise. Right. I mean, security, you know, yeah. so keep an eye on this guy. <laughs> yeah, but nothing. And Kirk continues to ask him questions. Like, like, let me just say, yes. like Captain Kirk had security on Harry Mudd and Mudd's women. Yep. Okay, but he doesn't have security on Lazarus. Yep. All right. I just want to say, I just want to throw that out there. And the, you know, to Harry real, Mudd, Lazarus. Yeah. <laughs> I warn you, Captain. You'll give me the crystals. This is now, he's a bad guy. Yeah. Obviously so. Don't threaten me, Lazarus. No threat intended. 
Yeah, no, that, that was, was a threat. That yeah. was clearly a threat. And then Kirk <laughs> just goes, okay, and lets Lazarus go wander away. And, and we do, but by the way, there is security following Lazarus, except that in the next scene, the security is nowhere to be found. So they follow him off the bridge. But when we get down to some corridor, then, and he gets hit with another of the space, you know, rip in space things, the security's gone. And now we have the antimatter Lazarus because there is no bandage on him anymore. And he walks away. And again, this is part of the stuff that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But he sees uh, Lieutenant Masters in there. She's closing like a cool, a cool triangular sort of drawer where we're yep. charging mm-hmm. our dilithium crystals. A uh, red guy comes in who's also working in engineering. And Lazarus grabs him, knocks him out. I like that they kind of hide him behind a chair. Um, <laughs> and then he grabs her and I think he gasses her or drugs her or something. And she calls out to the captain. And at this moment, security says, Oh, Lazarus is missing. Yeah. It's like, you guys suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's bad. It's bad. <laughs> um, again, this is a show don't tell thing. It would be cool to show Lazarus lose security. It's not cool to just have Lazarus lose security and have security say we lost him. That's not interesting. And that brings us to act three. Act three. Phew. Yeah. Halfway there. <laughs> now, somewhere off camera in the act break during a commercial for like Gillette razors or, you know, roll aids, we now have bandaged Lazarus back. Crazy Lazarus is back. They made the switcheroo again. And here's the thing I don't understand. Okay. This is maybe taking it too far, but. Everything's duplicated, right? To the point where they're wearing the same clothes, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I kind of go, what are the rules of this universe? Lazarus, crazy Lazarus and antimatter Lazarus are really different people. Yes, they, they, they are. That's a good point. And they're, they're, they got the same beard, the same clothes. Now, see now, when we look at the concept of, of these parallel universes, multiverses, obviously we see that that, that explored much, much better with much greater success and effectiveness in the second season with mirror mirror. But even back in the sixties, the concept of parallel universes may seem really, really sci-fi, but over the last 50 years, it's become more of a plausible theory. A lot of scientists, researchers, and physicists uh, have started to really buy into the concept of parallel universes and that they're, they're, they're based on quantum mechanics in which there are multiple states of existence for particles that are possible all at the same time. And there's a, the many worlds theory proposes that every time there is an outcome in one state, there is another world in which a different quantum outcome becomes a reality. So in this episode for the alternative factor, we're dealing with two Lazaruses in two universes and a mirror mirror again a parallel universe when in fact scientists and researchers and physicists are theorizing that there are many many almost almost an infinite number of universes that play out with alternate realities and instant by instant our perceived universe branches out into a nearly infinite number of alternate universes there's a book called something deeply hidden Quantum Worlds and the Emergence of Space-Time, written by Sean Carroll, he's a physicist, where he explores the idea of, uh, of quantum mechanics and the many worlds theory. And there's another book called The Hidden Reality, Parallel Universes and the Deep Laws of the Cosmos, written by 
Brian Greene, also a physicist, and he's developed something called the string theory, which links quantum mechanics, which I was just talking about, to Einstein's theory of relativity, and that we're living in a universe that exists on one giant surface, and there are other multiple giant surfaces out there. And because of the way that these the multi-universe exists, according to all these theories, it would never be possible at least according to these physicists, and they kind of know what they're talking about, like we will never be able to prove the existence of these parallel universes because we would never be able to get there. But in Star Trek, they do get there and they only get to one universe. So if Lazarus, my point with all this is that if Lazarus is going crazy because there's another version of him out there in another universe, the fact is there is a nearly infinite number of Lazarus, Lazarus's and Kirk's I believe and it's Lazari. Lazari. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely. Um, but, you know, the whole prospect of multi-universe uh, parallel universes is such a fascinating one that like at any point, uh, like when I was driving over here today to record this episode of Enterprise Incidents with you, that in an alternate universe, uh, I, I get into an accident and I never make it. I'm just speculating on how many different versions of our podcast there are out in the multiverse. There's one where you're partnered with someone else. There's one where we're doing next generation. There's one there's there is literally an infinite number of enterprise incidents with Scott and Steve. There might even be an enterprise incidents podcast out there where we talk about Battlestar Galactica. That's, who the hell knows? Who knows? <laughs> um, that is all really fascinating. And well, and this is the thing is. If you really wanted to explore alternate universes, then do that, you know, which they really do in Mirror Mirror. If you really want a story about a charismatic person who seduces someone, then do that, which they really do in Space Seed. And this is like they're kind of dipping their toes in, in this stuff, but not really, really dealing with it. Right, exactly. Uh, it's uh, We're in the briefing room and we're interrogating Lazarus and this entire scene is basically a repetition of the questions that they are asking him before and he is continuing to give these vague religious answers while basically having no beard. He is almost yeah, beardless yeah, that beard, in this scene. The beard is really, really bad. Thick to thin, the thick to thin. This is the worst. This scene is the worst. I mean, it's like he has just like a couple of hairs. Yeah, it's bad. And we get essentially no information about this whole thing, except that the dilithium crystals, which are missing, are gone. And he didn't beam down. Nobody beamed up. Where did the dilithium crystals go? Mm -hmm. And he says this other guy told him. And again, it would make a lot of sense for you to tell Kirk more about what's going on, to be a little Dr. Adams and give him some convincing information to help him do what you want him to do. But we say, let's organize a search party. And again... Hey, let's have Lazarus beam down with us. <laughs> what could go wrong? Well, maybe he could fall again. <laughs> yeah. So we're back on the planet and we're at the ship. And now we can't locate the source of, of radiation. Again, this is not consistent. We, I don't think they ever went, well, what is this radiation? Where is it coming from? Why is it sometimes there? And why is it sometimes not there? We never deal with it. Doesn't make sense. And then... Kirk tells people to look around. He gives this order. Don't be afraid to use your weapons. <laughs> That's a weird order to give. Yep. It's like, we don't know what we're looking for. We don't know what this person is. The, they might be holding our dilithium crystals. 
maybe shooting first and asking questions later is not actually yeah, a yeah. good they're plan. holding our dilithium crystal do you really want to shoot a, a phaser on a, at a person yeah. holding dilithium crystals that won't end well and then lazarus again gets away <laughs> and he's up on the rocks it's like why are you letting this guy out of your sight um and he's alone and this is my note i wrote and shockingly it happens again. Yeah, the blink happens again. He's back in the corridor. Then he falls again. And now we're back in sick bay again. What a redundant yep. series of plot contrivances uh, in this episode. It's really spectacular. Two things also that happen is one, I don't understand why is Kirk not armed? And when they beam down, all the other security guys are armed. Kirk should be. Um, and the other thing that happens is. There's a rock that's about to fall on Kirk and Lazarus does warn Kirk about the rock. If you had put that in act one as a way to have Kirk trust Lazarus more, then that would make sense. I don't understand what what it does in act three. If you would have had that moment with the rock, by the way, is that the same rock that Kirk used to try to kill the Gorn in Arena? Probably. Probably is. (laughs) But you're right. If they when they were all down there for the first time at the beginning of act one. Kirk hears a voice saying, and Lazarus saves him before he even meets him. That would have established a trust level where maybe it would have made a little, a little, and I mean a real little bit of sense where Kirk would have trusted him to let him walk around freely on the Enterprise. Maybe a little bit. But as you say, we're back at sickbay (laughs) for another scene where we get nowhere with these questions. And we even have like, they tried to make a conflict, classic sort of Star Trek conflict of McCoy saying, no, no, it's not a good time to question him. You might protect my patient and Kirk pushing. We see that many times in Star Trek. This one is <laughs> McCoy's uh, resistance is so token. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like this yeah, really yeah. He does it a- in Space Seed. He does it in Star Trek, the motion picture. It does, it's a normal, it's, it happens several times. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it's not a very good one. The evidence you gave at your first screening. Calls you a liar, Lazarus. For one thing, there's no planet at the location you said you came from. There never has been. And we are about to get a piece of information here from Lazarus that is totally out of left field. Totally. And is also a piece of information that is not backed up or followed up upon in any way. It is completely unnecessary. And I assume you're referring to the fact that Lazarus is a time traveler. So Lazarus is a time traveler. Whoa. I mean, not only is he traveling between two different universes, but he's a, he's a time traveler. And what does that have to do with anything? Nothing at all. Nothing. Zero. <laughs> totally useless. It makes no sense. I mean, it's like, okay, maybe we could use that to explain maybe the other winkings out happened hundreds of years in the past or in the future. I mean, maybe that could explain that, but no, they do nothing. And it also implies that the other Lazarus is also a time traveler and that their ships, they both have time traveling ships. And this is again, where I'm going to bring up something that is a great science fiction idea. It is not in this episode, <laughs> but the, the the big question of, do we have free will? That's a, that's a huge question that we can explore in all sorts of science fiction. Sure. We have two Laz- Lazari, who are totally different in character. If they have free will, they should end up in totally different places and be doing totally different things, Mm -hmm. wearing totally different outfits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The only reason that they could end up in the same place at the same time and always be linked is if they don't have free will. Why would sane Lazarus do all the same things that crazy Lazarus is doing? Right, right. right. Why indeed? In fact, 
Sane Lazarus is doing so many of the things that Crazy Lazarus is doing, it adds to the confusion of not being able to tell tell them apart. It does. It just doesn't make sense. Either they're really different or they're not. Right. You know, mm-hmm. in this case, they're not. Um, so and again, we're kind of at the same impasse. Lazarus asking for help. Kirk refusing. And then finally, McCoy says he's got to get some rest. And would you get that muscle man out of my sick bay? And Kirk dismisses him. Right. Yeah. It's like, no, I'm pretty sure this guy's dangerous. And by the way, e- even though we've seen McCoy protect his patient, you know, in so many episodes and even the films, obviously, protection of the patient here, insisting that Kirk dismiss the security guard that's clearly needed. Again, it's another moment that feels forced to contrive. Now, the way he says it is amusing and funny. Yeah. And very much like McCoy. Sure. But it just doesn't make sense. Well, and then McCoy says, don't worry, he's not going anywhere. Not this time. Why? How do you know that? Yeah. <laughs> you literally, this guy literally, you said is like strong as a bull in the next scene and you don't know why, but for some reason you're totally confident that he's not going to get up and do anything, which of course, as soon as we leave, Lazarus gets up, gets hit again by the thing, but yep. this time doesn't change. Oh my God. How, I, it's like you lose track about all the times that the blink happens. It's well, and why did this one even happen? Why was it necessary? And and why didn't anyone else on the ship feel it? Okay. We got to the briefing room scene. As yes. much as I don't think this is a good episode, I do think there are a couple of interesting things in the scene. I like the scene. I like the way. Okay. So we're in the briefing room and, and we're, 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 we're going to experience one of the one of the great things that makes Star Trek so great. The troubleshooting, the dynamic between, you know, usually it's Kirk, Spock and McCoy. But in this case, it's just Kirk and Spock. It's a very heavily written episode, a lot of exposition. But also what I like about it is that Spock clearly should know a lot about this stuff. And unexpectedly, Kirk also knows a lot about this stuff. And why does he know a lot about what Spock, why is he able to follow along with Spock and provide additional information for them to zero in on the root of the problem? And that is because, like Steve, you have pointed out so effectively, Kirk is a nerd. He was a stack of books with legs back at the academy. He studied really, really hard. He knows a lot about a lot of things. And watching Kirk hold his own with Spock, I think, is pretty damn impressive. You literally said exactly what I have in my notes. It's exactly what I was thinking, too. And I'll say something else. It's not just that he's even with Spock. He's ahead of Spock in most of this scene. He has to lead. He already has figured out that they're two Lazari. He has to lead Spock to that conclusion. He's there ahead of him. I and this the note that I had is this is not one very smart human talking to an exceptional mind. This is two exceptional minds working yes, together. Absolutely, absolutely. And by the way, it was because of our prior conversations about Kirk's backstory, about what Kirk was like back in the and you know clearly he was definitely had a way with the ladies, but he also you know he knew his priorities and he studied hard and he was really smart. Uh, he, he was very resourceful and I appreciated this moment. And as a result, the episode more because of the way we've, we've established a serialization to the evolution of Kirk. Right. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. 
I also think there's scenes in the moments in this scene that are just somewhat ridiculous. For one thing, I think you can see the beginnings of Shatner's fatal flaw as an actor. And, and what it is, is if he doesn't have anything to play, he'll add. Is that there are scenes that aren't emotional. As I said, there's very little personal in this episode. And then Shatner, at, he'll do things. Like there's the moment where they say, oh, it must have come from outside. And Shatner goes, outside. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you can just that, see, yeah. it's like he does things vocally and physically because he feels he needs to create emotional intensity mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when there really isn't emotional intensity in the scene. Well, what Shatner had said in later years that he would tend to lay it on a little thick and, and put on the overacting when the scripts yeah. didn't really work. Now in the first and second season, it was extremely rare when right. a script just did not work. In fact, in the first and second season, I think the alternative factor is really the only episode that just flat out doesn't work. I mean, there are other episodes that I might not really love. Like remember the immunity syndrome yeah. with the giant amoeba? You know, that's not really an episode I watch a it's whole lot. It's a fairly lot. forgettable episode. It's a fairly forgettable episode, exactly. But I still, when I do watch it, I think it's good enough, you know, especially with the Kirk, Spock, McCoy dynamic with Who to Send and the Shuttlecraft. I think that works really well. But for the most part, the scripts in the first two seasons worked and Shatner's performance was on point. It isn't until the third season that we start to get to, you know, a few episodes more than I care to admit that really don't work. And that is when we, we see Shatner really laid on thick. Yeah. So the alternative factor to your point is the first time that we're really seeing like that side of Shatner, his flaw as an actor really come to the fore because just like he himself had pointed out, he would do that when the scripts didn't work. And in the alternative factor, the script didn't work. Well, and that's why I said at the beginning, I, I far more likely to blame scripts and directors than I do blame actors. Mm. It's not that there aren't bad actors who get bad performances. Obviously, sometimes there are. Um, but particularly when you see a good actor like Shatner give a performance that doesn't quite work. Well, we know he's a good actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another universe occupying the same space at the same time. The possible existence of a parallel universe has been scientifically conceded, Captain. It's so interesting that this idea that we're going to get to, that there are two Lazari, Kirk leads Spock to that idea because he's so far ahead of him. He says, All right, what would happen if another universe, say a minus universe, came into contact with a positive universe such as ours? Unquestionably a warp. A distortion of physical laws on an immense scale. Which is what we've been experiencing. The point where they come into contact, couldn't that be described as a whole? Indeed. Early on, Commodore Barstow said there's an invasion. And now, three acts later, <laughs> we have figured out that there's this corridor. There has been no evidence of a large-scale invasion. But a small-scale invasion, Mr. Spock. That's using a thing that made no sense as confirmation later on based on things that Commodore Barstow didn't know anything about. There's no reason for Commodore Barstow to be, to say that it was an invasion in the first place. Therefore them saying, ah, this proves that what it's going on because that's the invasion that Commodore Barstow was talking about. This makes no sense. That's, oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you know, 
that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do agree that there are two of them and that one of them is crazy. And then we get to this moment. He must be stopped, held, destroyed if necessary. I don't follow you. Two parallel universes. Project this. I love that he uses the word project this. You know why? Why? Because Kirk is just as smart as him. Project this means I want you to create a mental model of the physics in your mind. That's what Spock is telling Kirk to do. When two identical particles of matter and antimatter meet. Like Lazarus. Identical. Like both Lazarus. Only one is matter and the other antimatter. If they meet. And then Spock says, Annihilation, Jim. Total, complete, absolute annihilation. Of everything that exists. Everywhere. That's uh, pretty fierce. Pretty big stuff. Yeah. I think what they're saying, because you brought up before, how can the antimatter Lazarus walk around in our universe without mm-hmm. everything being destroyed? Mm-hmm. I think what they're saying is that it's because their entire bodies are 100% identical. It's only if you touch something that's absolutely identical that you destroy the universe. Oh, I see. So, so I don't think that makes sense, but I think that's what they're saying. Well, because you know the matter Kirk goes into mm-hmm. the antimatter universe and he's fine. But like if the two Lazarus... If, if the Lazarai, <laughs> I'm going to start using that. It's a lot easier to say that. Uh, if the Lazarai come together in one universe, that's when all bets are off. Yes. I don't think, again, I don't think that makes sense because what we should be talking about is atoms, not humans. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. It's yeah. like, it's, you know, and, and by the way, there is annihilate. There is such a thing as antimatter. They can create it in, you know, uh, in a linear accelerator. And it, it you know, it's basically, I believe what it is is that basic matter is a positively charged proton surrounded by a negatively charged electron in an atom. And I believe antimatter is a negatively charged proton or a negatron with a positively charged thing flying around it. I believe that's mm. what it is. But mm. but I'm sure we have listeners who are real physicists who could, could probably Yes, if you're listening and you can explain this, head to our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, and tell us something we we don't know but need to know. <laughs> yeah. Our crazy Lazarus is in the corridor. He sees a high-voltage panel, which apparently you could just open up, move some ch- some chips around, and sort something out. And we're back in engineering. And again, we have the same beat where we're going to have our lieutenant and our same red guy get wiped out in engineering again. This time, something shorts out and there's smoke everywhere. By the way, when they come out of that engineering, there's a lot of smoke. Yeah, there is a lot of smoke. (laughs) A lot of smoke. An alarm goes off. And then we hear that Lazarus got some more crystals. And we're in the transporter room. Lazarus is just wandering all over this ship with no problems whatsoever. Uh, and he knocks a du- dude out, beams himself down. Uh, by the way, how, okay, how the hell did he know how to beam himself down to a planet? I don't know. How did anti-Lazarus, who was only, on, you know, know how to get to engineering? And then, and then when Kirk gets, gets into the transporter room, the transporter chief that Lazarus just knocked out, knocked out is standing there perfectly fine, like not yep. rubbing his neck. Kirk beams down. And he goes to go after Lazarus, who's working on his ship, putting the, yep. the crystals in place. And Lazarus is not prepared for Kirk to approach him. And when Kirk does approach him while he's in his ship, 
Kirk disappears and Lazarus screams, no. And that brings us to the end of act three. By the way, no, the screamed no is one of those things that should be outlawed from all film going forward. Except if it's a comedy, then you can do it to make fun of it. But other than that, please don't do it. I mean, you know, no more, no, like, like uh, Darth Vader and revenge of the Sith. No, Uh, we're done. Yeah. That's all terrible. It's act four. Now we have Kirk in the weird negative space. Um, and then we're back on the planet. I think we're in Vasquez rocks. It's golden hour. It's a beautiful shot. And then the reverse of it, of the ship, we're on a set. Um, and there is antimatter Lazarus stage 10 on the Desilu lot. Oh, stage 10. Good to know. And I actually think he's good in this scene. Yeah, I do too. This Lazarus is very different from the, uh, the crazy Lazarus. I thought Robert Brown's performance in the scene was right on point because for the rest of the episode, as they're switching back and forth, it's very confusing who's who. And even a little bandage on the forehead doesn't do enough to differentiate between the two of them. But here he's right on point. Well, and this is the thing. Uh, Here's another a good technique for a screenwriter or a writer in general who's writing fiction is imagine yourself as the character in the situation and ask yourself, what would I do? Think about what does the character want? Think about what they know. Think about what kind of person they are and then try to predict their behavior. Antimatter Lazarus's behavior up to this point has made no sense. Like he wakes because because we have to think like, well, what does he know? He's wrestling with this Lazarus in a weird corridor and then he's suddenly on the Enterprise. Does he know it? He hasn't spoken to anybody in the Enterprise. He doesn't know anything about the Enterprise. Like if he's as sane and rational as we see here, why doesn't he go to Captain Kirk and say, hey, I need your help. I need your help. There's two of me. Mm -hmm. There's this other guy. He's crazy. I know you've met him probably, you know, and we got it. He's trying to destroy our universes. And this is how. Completely agree with you. That would have saved a lot of of time and energy. (laughs) Instead of stealing some dilithium crystals. Um, But they have a perfectly rational conversation. By the way, I like the moment. Kirk's like, so this is a parallel universe. And Lazarus says, of course. Antimatter. Here. Yes. Nobody would call their own universe antimatter. <laughs> it's like, no, no, this is matter. You guys are the antimatter. But that's a very good point. That's a very quick point. <laughs> and by the way, I, I think at some point, uh, Lazarus says it's hard to explain. Yeah. And I just went, amen to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we get some more exposition that he has a plan. This is, you know, that he knows that this other crazy Lazarus is trying to destroy the universe and that. He's nuts. And that even though he knows that us meeting in one of our uh, universes will destroy everything, he doesn't care because he's crazy. But anti-Lazarus says, but I think if we hurry and you will help me, you can yet still be stopped. And basically we say like you coming through probably drained his dilithium crystals. It can take him about 10 minutes. If we can trap him in that corridor before he makes it to this side then we could save both universes and we could seal off the corridor and we'll all be cool. And Kirk goes, but you can't hold him there. Can't I, Captain? You destroy his ship. But if I destroy his ship, won't yours also be destroyed? It will. Again, these are the rules of the... <laughs> so, like, let's think of it this way. Is that, let's say we're in our matter universe and my house burns down. Does that mean that the, the universe in some other universe that all the other versions of my house are burning down? That doesn't make sense mm. because we went on divergent paths and did different stuff. So in fact, in some other universe, I am in, not 
pouring gasoline on myself and smoking cigarettes in the middle of the night to burn <laughs> down my house, you know? Right, right, right. But in this case, we destroy the ship because there's no Enterprise, by the way, in the antimatter universe. Well, yeah, not that we know of. So what's going to destroy Lazarus's ship when this ship gets right, destroyed? Right. It's just going to disappear because yeah. it does in the, in the, in the matter universe. Um, but Kirk does understand what this is going to mean. He says, You'll be trapped inside that corridor with him forever at each other's throats throughout time. Is it such a large price to pay for the safety of two universes? I think this guy's good in this yeah. scene. Yeah, I, he's good in this scene. Mm-hmm. If we had seen this more, this would have been a much, much better episode. I agree completely. And then Kirk says, okay. And we again activated. We see the spinny thing. We go through the weird corridor. We're back in our universe. And there's Lazarus. Spock and security guards are there. Kirk says, to, goes to fight him, to force him into a ship, and tells Spock and uh, the security guys to stand back and let him fight him alone. Why? Right. right. Why don't you just stun him? Stun him and then throw him in the corridor. In fact, why don't you just kill him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I never thought about that, but you're right. Why didn't he just kill him? I mean, I would have... I, I, or put him in jail or do there's a million things you could have done, you know, that just like don't. And, 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 and then if you so let me ask this question. OK, if I don't send crazy Lazarus into the corridor, but I do destroy the ship. What happens if you don't send Lazarus into the corridor and but you do destroy the ship, then that means the bad Lazarus is trapped in, in, in our universe powerless. Yes. Right. So that, so in the end, you still have the, and I don't have to have two Lazari fighting each other for all eternity. Right. And you could just lock this guy up and that's the end of it. Let me ask you this question. Okay. So if destroying the ship in one universe automatically destroys it in the other, why doesn't anti-Lazarus just destroy his ship? Why doesn't the enterprise just destroy the ship? Why why do you No, I say, why do we even get there? Anti-Lazarus, as soon as there's a problem, this guy's trying to destroy our universe. I'll just destroy my ship. But, but I mean, but if, if, if the anti-Lazarus is saying that, you know, wait till we're both in the corridor and then destroy the ship and then we'll be trapped in the corridor together for all eternity. Well, why don't you just destroy the ship in one universe? It'll get destroyed in the outer right. universe. And, and, and one Lazarus will be trapped in ours. The other one will be trapped in the other. They'll never have to meet. Yes. And, and that's the end of it. Right. Right. Lazarus could have just destroyed his own ship. Right. And that would have been the end. And we would never have had this episode and all of us would have been happier because <laughs> <laughs> it's not good. Um, but that Kirk does, everyone stands around while Kirk fights it. And it's like the dude, the fate of the universe, you're just going to rest it on your ability to beat this guy up. Yeah. Yeah. Like that doesn't seem like a good plan, Captain, <laughs> but he does. He gets it in an arm bar. Lazarus is screaming. No, I'm not ready. And he pushes him in. And Kirk says, take these crystals to the Enterprise. We got to destroy the ship. We go back to the bridge. We activate the phasers. We're ready to fire. And then there is a long, long pause. And they go, phaser standing by. And still a long pause. And then he says, fire. I understand what they're doing. They're trying to say this is an emotional moment for Kirk because he realizes that he's trapping these two forever in the corridor. And that is why he's taking a moment. I don't think that makes sense. It's the fate of the universe, dude. Like he would get on board and say fire. 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. He, he regret it later and feel about it later. So they fire and the, uh, the uh, Lazarus ship disappears and the two Lazarus are trapped in the corridor for all eternity. And that's it. Everything's all right. <laughs> but what of ladders of Lazarus? But what of Lazarus indeed? So I'll tell you one thing. The but what of Lazarus trapped for all eternity with a madman at your throat. That freaked me out. Like that upset. It's, it's not as upsetting as I want to stay from Charlie X. Right. Mm. But it's a similar sort of thing of like that idea. Wow. Eternity. Thousands of millennia in a constant battle with a madman. That upsets me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a downbeat ending for sure. It's supposed to be a, a an ending that stays with you. And if the episode was actually uh, half as good as the episode that preceded it, it would have been uh, an episode that had a lasting impact. And it actually is striking to go from shooting arena where yeah. uh, where an episode where everything worked to shooting an episode like the alternative factor where most of it did not work. The yeah. contrast between arena to the alternative factor to the rebound that they do in the next episode, which is uh, tomorrow's yesterday. It's just so striking just how, how like glaring the alternative factor is and, and just the levels that it just is such a failure of an episode. I know I've been ripping this episode to pieces and I think it deserves all this criticism, but I also want to cut the, uh, the makers of Star Trek some slack because first of all, anyone who thinks it's easy to produce an entire season of hour long episodes of television is crazy. Absolutely. Especially a show like this. This is really, really hard. And then you add to it. What I've learned is that there were network notes that made a radical transformation in the script right before you went to shoot. Then you have, and that was forced on them by the networks. We don't, that other script might've been really good. We don't know. Um, then you have a good actor leave the day before you're supposed to shoot it. You know, like that's a lot of pressure and you are scrambling to just make your day. Right. And so it's actually more surprising how good the batting average of Star Trek is up to this point than it is that this is not a great episode. Well, the, the ultimate sacrifice that anti-Lazarus makes, you're right, it, as, as flawed as the episode is, it is a moment that that does that does stay with you a little, but it still does stay with you. And it is a profound moment on which the episode closes out. But what of Lazarus? Well, what of John Drew Barrymore? Mm. What was the fallout of his decision to just walk away from Star Trek? Well, Herb Solo, who was the executive in charge of production at Desilu, appealed to Bernie Weitzman, who was the VP, the vice president of business affairs at Desilu, insisting that they go after John Drew Barrymore for damages. Mm. Like he was not going to let this guy off the hook. So Desilu filed a complaint with SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, and a hearing took place on January 4th, 1967. That's right. John Drew Barrymore was court-martialed <laughs> over his decision to leave Star Trek. So present on the Star Trek side were Joe D'Agosta, who was the casting director, Bob Justman, Herb Solo, and Weitzman, uh, Bernie Weitzman, the VP of uh, Business Affairs at Desilu. And uh, the hearing was presided over by Carl Malden, who really? was the president of SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, you know, best known from Streets of San Francisco. 
the trial board on the trial board for Barrymore was Charlton Heston, Jeanette Nolan, and check this out, Ricardo Matalban. Wow. Ricardo Matalban was on the trial board to try John Drew okay. Barrymore. Before you tell me what happened, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. based on who you said is on this board mm-hmm. um, and Carl Malden, all those people are working actors, even Heston. Heston was a guy, as far as I know, he showed up and did the job. Mm-hmm. He was very much a practical, this is a craft. I have to, like a very responsible actor as far sure, as I know. Sure. Carl Malden is an incredible supporting actor yep. in all sorts of things. He always was a guy who showed up and did the job. Maltabon, same thing. He's a longtime actor who did all sorts of gigs before Space Seed and after Space Seed. A working, my guess is they found against John Drew Barrymore. Well, you are correct. John Drew Barrymore was found guilty of conduct unbecoming a member, and he was fined $1,500, and his SAG card was suspended for six months. He could wow. not work for six months. So they went after him, and they made an example of him. And Ricardo Montalban, who would show up in just a few episodes to play Khan and Space Seed. Uh, so that was the, those were the consequences of Barrymore walking away from Star Trek wow. while his episode was being filmed. And in terms of the people who worked on the episode, Gerd Oswald, who directed the episode, said, and I quote, the script was so complicated, it was even hard to interpret for some of us deeply involved with it. Now, by contrast, Dorothy Fontana, who was becoming a screenwriter in her own, and she would soon write This Side of Paradise, uh, she said the script wasn't that bad. It was kind of a mishmash. It didn't help that the actor was being thrown into a difficult situation. That actor, Robert Brown, said this, I was living a nightmare because I was playing catch up. I was being pushed and chased every day. All this rushing created an uncomfortable feeling, but not from William Shatner. He couldn't have been better. Apparently, if I hadn't taken the role, and this is interesting, they were going to scrap the episode and start filming another one right away. Wow. That is interesting. Yeah. And it might have given them time to rewrite this thing yep. and actually have a better episode. Yeah. If, if Robert Brown had, had not you know, signed on or if they couldn't find a replacement for Barrymore and they had to scrap the episode, they would have gone right into the next episode, which we're going to talk about in the next Enterprise Incidents, which is tomorrow is yesterday. But uh, in in the end, I mean, good Lord, after this conversation, do you have a- any changed feelings at all about the alternative factor? So I have gained a whole bunch of feelings I never had about the alternative factor because I never cared to put in much thought to it until doing this show. I think for me, look, this is a bad episode of television. It's a bad episode of Star Trek as far as I'm concerned. But I think there are really great lessons here. The first is, and this is for people who are thinking about making shows or telling stories, make it personal. Is that there's there's the famous quote from, and very disturbing quote from Joseph Stalin of, One death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, is that we think if I magnify the stakes, the universe is in peril, it will magnify the tension. In fact, that's not true. There are episodes of Star Trek where we're trying to save one life that are far more tense than this, where the universe is at stake. It's not the stakes. 
It's how is the thing personal? The second thing is think through your characters and what they want. And, and their actions should reflect who they are and what they want. Throughout this entire episode, both Lazari are not acting in ways that make sense. And Kirk is not acting in ways that make sense. Correct. Yeah, I think that's a thing that I really noticed, uh, especially with regards to just letting Lazarus walk around the ship. Like Kirk is not acting in character yeah. at all. And, and, the, th and the, th the other thing I'll say is like, look, there have been all sorts of things already in Star Trek where like, I, that doesn't quite hold together, whether it's a sciencey thing or an engineering thing or, you know, like there's things, but we forgive them because so much of the other stuff is really good. Yep. There is a point where if you have two things that don't quite make sense, you can get away with it. If you have 20 things, you can't. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. there's just too many things that when you think about them make no sense at all. Right. So it's like, those are, those are the big lessons for me, but I'm going to go back to the first one. Make it personal is that the good episodes of Star Trek are about them. It's about them and their emotions and their desires Agreed. and who they are. Agreed that's completely. what makes it good. Yep. You know, so that's that's sort of what I think about alternative factor. And, and from this point forward, I'm going to try not to think about it at all. <laughs> well, I'm really curious to know what you think of the alternative factor. So for everyone who has been listening to Enterprise Incidents and everyone who listened to our deep dive on the alternative factor please head over to our Facebook page. Did you ever like this episode? Do you like it more now? Do you like it less than you did before? Or do you think that this episode just gets a bad rap? We would love to know. Do you think the alternative factor is as bad as, as Star Trek lore has made it out to be? Or do you think it has more merits or do you just like the episode let us know head over to our facebook page check us out and make sure if you're listening to our podcast on apple podcasts please review enterprise incidents let us know what you think uh give us a review on apple Podcasts. those are really really crucial you can listen to us on spotify you can listen to us on our youtube we don't have video it's just our audio on our youtube channel and steve where can people find you well, they can find me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. They can follow Enterprise Incidents at Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. And if you're into great films, you can follow us on the Cinephiles, that's C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. I'm not, normally I bring up some other movies that this movie reminds me of, but I don't think we've ever done a movie on the Cinephiles that reminds me of Alternative Factor. So instead, I'm just going to say, one of my favorite episodes is our episode on Ken Burns's The Civil War. It's a two-part one on a 12-hour-long TV documentary. Good gosh, wow. And it, it's, it's one I'm really, really proud of. So if you're into history, then check out our episode on The Civil War. Scott, if people wanted to find you, how would they do so? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. You can check out my YouTube channel. I have a lot of live review movies, and I also have a, other film-related shows that I produce and edit on my YouTube channel, which is just Scott Mance. And uh, you could definitely follow us on our Facebook page, Enterprise Incidents, uh, where we're thrilled that our, our, we're, we're engaging so many of our listeners. And for everyone who's been following us and listening to Enterprise Incidents, 
We are very, very grateful for your support. We are thrilled by the engagement, by the reactions we've been getting. And if you want to share Enterprise Incidents with fellow Star Trek fans, whether they are diehard fans or whether they are just getting into Star Trek for the very first time, that would be really, really, really awesome. And I'm very excited because we are going to rebound on our next episode of Enterprise Incidents with an episode that I have always loved, an episode that has a lot of levity, an episode that was written by the great Dorothy Fontaine an episode that is a whole lot of fun to watch. That episode is Tomorrow is Yesterday. What would you do if you looked up in the sky and you saw the Enterprise flying by? That's one thing that happens in a really, really great episode. So please join us for the next episode of Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly. Boldly.